Welcome back to another episode of the B2B Founder Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Trainer. I'm excited to have Patrick Comer join the podcast today to talk about he and the team at Lucid were able to take an idea and grow it, or scale it in this case, to a $100 million company. What I love about this story is how Patrick was able to modernize the market research space through tech and services. We spent a lot of time on how he transitioned from a startup CEO to a high growth CEO and the complexity and the difference. And he also breaks down how the, the company and he himself had to manage differently as they grew to a million dollars to 10 million, then ultimately to over a hundred million dollars. I think you'll really enjoy Patrick and Lucid's story. There's so many lessons for growth founders in this episode. So I'm excited for you to take a listen. And lastly, and as a favor, if you enjoyed the podcast, please do subscribe, whatever platform that you listen to this podcast on today, it would be a great help to us and the team. And now on to the interview with Patrick. Hey, good morning, Patrick. Welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Brett. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for bringing me along. Uh, it's definitely my pleasure, and I'm excited to get into your, your growth story. And you know, I think there's going to be so much value for the audience to hear it from your perspective. But before we jump into that, why don't you share with the audience a little bit about Lucid and what you do and who you work with and give us that little background. Absolutely. So Lucid is the leader in what we call the ResTech space. So if you're familiar with ad tech or MarTech, the entire insights and research and measurement industry is going through a very similar digital transformation where previously the concept of running a survey might be like a six week project that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars that is completely being disrupted. So today people are running immense projects on SurveyMonkey or Qualtrics and Lucid is at the infrastructure is the largest marketplace for buying respondents or users who take surveys. And we provide massive media measurement for all types of digital media so that our customers know what their, not only their competitors, but also their customers think about their products and services. The way to think about it is that we are now a $100 million revenue business, and we are at the heartbeat of the transformation of the insights and research space. Got it. And who do you primarily work with? Is it large enterprise? Is it startup mid-market? Where's, where's kind of your sweet spot? A broad suite of customers, everything okay. from major brands like Procter & Gamble and say Unilever have huge advertising budgets and really care how their advertisement is performing. We also have huge customers, say management consulting, whether that's McKinsey or Bain, for example, who run lots of projects where their customers really understand how their products and services are actually impacting their, their key customers. We also have a lot of technology partners like a, a SurveyMonkey, a, a Qualtrics. Exciting for us that Qualtrics just went public uh, at a awesome. huge multiple in this past few days. And we also work with a lot of market research agencies uh, like a, an Ipsos or a Gallup. And in particular, last year, we saw a huge change in the amount of political business we did. For the first time in 20 years, uh, there was a technology shift and almost every single campaign was doing online and fast research to change their messaging as news was happening across the uh, country. 
Yeah, real time. Yeah, just growing up in the enterprise space, I know how slow <laughs> the industry moves, but the expectation from buyers now is much quicker. And you know, companies are slowly, I'm guessing from your perspective, starting to understand the power of those customer insights and leveraging it more than maybe they have in the past or for the first time. Well, what's really happening is insights is becoming part of a enterprise competitive advantage. So the faster you have competitive information or customer information, the better your daily or weekly decisions are going to be. And so what we're finding is the speed of iteration. What was once, as I said, I mentioned before, a four to six week project that would cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. And of course, by the time you got to the end of it, the business has probably made a decision anyway. Right. Now people are using insights in the day itself. They'll actually start a survey in the morning and by their afternoon meeting have results that are impacting the decisions that are being made. And that muscle, that agile research, that muscle of moving quickly with data from your customers or from your competitors' customers about your products and services can dramatically change how fast you can move as compared to your, your competitors. Yeah, it's such, I'm already taking us off talk because I really do want to talk about your growth story, but I think this is <laughs> such an important area for growth businesses to think about is don't guess what your customers are thinking. There's now tools and technologies and companies that can help you really understand what your customers are thinking, right? It'll, again, improve your odds of success. How many times do you have to make big bets? Call it a pivot, call it a launch of a new product. Every, Every new company is one big bet, if not several big bets. Right. And the more information you have around how that bet is going to be received by the people you think are going to buy it or use it, the more likely it is that bet is going to actually work out. And a lot of entrepreneurs and founders that I know tend not to do the research. They have either because they come from an industry sector or they have an insight of what they believe could be successful. They rely on that insight that they generate themselves and they start building against it. Right. And the reality is now you can, you can almost test any product or concept with any target market and relatively quickly and easily. And what I find is that more and more startups are starting to use that capability so that even before they start designing product or go to market on sales, they know exactly what their customers are going to react, or at least they have a strong understanding of how their customers are potentially going to react. It saves a huge amount of time and money because getting a, getting a product wrong or go to market wrong out of the gate might not just be lack of success. It may kill the business. So you getting these things right really, really matters. Yeah. And the tools are there. Take advantage of it. So I'm with you. All right. So let's, let's put it into your, your story because growing a hundred million dollar business is no small task. And if people have listened to my podcast, know that the two stats I talk about is, you know, less than 10% get to a million and then less than 1% get to that 10 million. And I'd love for you to kind of take us back in time. One, help us understand why you started the company. What was the problem that you were looking to solve? And then let's kind of talk about how you moved from the early stages of your first customers to eventually building to huge, huge volume of revenue. Well, the, the first question there is why start a company? And most people want to say it's because there's a business idea. But to really break it down, I had moved to New Orleans a few years after Katrina because my wife is from from New Orleans and we wanted to participate in the rebuild and the reconstruction of a city. Okay. And the challenge is that my entire background is in entrepreneurship and specifically B2B companies. So this is really a sweet spot fit for me. 
And whenever I've moved to a different place, I've said, well, I'm just going to network into the companies and the investors and they will find the right opportunity. A few years after Katrina in New Orleans, that just didn't really exist. And so I dawned on me very quickly that if I was going to do what I do, grow and build companies, I was going to actually have to start one. And that started a nine month process of investigation as to what would be worth building based upon my experience in previous companies and previous industries, that if we were right, if all the magic tricks that are going to happen, if it does work, we've built something rather incredible and highly valuable. And so that was the reason for starting the company is need for a role, need for an opportunity within New Orleans and contributing to the rebirth of that community. The insight within the research space is I started my entrepreneurial journey during the dot-com bubble in New York or Silicon Alley before the turn of the millennium back in the you know, 1997, yep. 1998 era. And I saw the birth of the first real digital agencies as advertising was moving to ad tech. Companies like Avenue A, Razorfish, and all of Madison Avenue trying to figure this out. And it was after that period of 9-11 when I moved from New York to Los Angeles and first had my taste of what the insights business was like, I realized that they're highly correlated. The processes of running an advertisement, what's necessary and how that industry was evolving could also work in the research and insight space, the survey business. Right. And so what the core insight was on starting Lucid is I can take the programmatic business model from advertising and parlay it into this new industry that was highly correlated, but also definitely different. Interesting. And so that was the the, the birth, right? You said, that right. was the birth. Change <laughs> I like it. You know, solving a big problem, right? That an outdated industry, if you will, I've been living through that, that bubble. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't heard Razorfish in a while like that. Yeah. Uh, Razorfish, the Avenue A blast from the past, right? Yeah. Back, first, yeah, yeah. back when we were, it was e-commerce and the new economy was going to transform the entire landscape. We were right. It was just early yeah, for us in different industries. Bit early. And then we had the, the financial crisis slow some things down. So yep. yeah, you picked an interesting, so you started Lucid, what, about 10 years ago? 2010 was when okay. we started this company, yep. So post, you got the technology starting to definitely was coming back. We're starting to rebound a little bit from the financial crisis. And you, was it just you when you started the company? Did you put a team together? How did you How did you go about attacking? I, I pulled together what I call a ragtag team of, of folks here in New Orleans who were, were crazy enough to start a, a new company years after Katrina. And so, you know, that year one, you talk about that first million, how to do that. What's crazy about this company is we not only booked, but revenue in the first nine months was 1.6 million. Oh, fantastic. But to be clear, that was all what I'd call tech-enabled service driven. So we started to build on our core platform, which is the core driver of SaaS and subscription revenue for us today, the marketplace. We started to build and we lit up early version one in 2010. Okay. But we're one of those scenarios where we relied on our ability to do tech-enabled services. So we were working on delivering project work on top of our platform while we started to bring on customers who were subscribing to our platform as well. And the story of our business is a story of a lot of businesses, how you take a more service-driven revenue model that is tech-enabled and transform it into a subscription-based SaaS model. Some companies 
especially on the consumer side, can start more sassy and they can be dedicated to it and they raise the right capital, it's possible for you to build your revenue base from SaaS from day one. And if you're successful, gobs of value created, et cetera. But a lot of customers, sorry, a lot of the founders and other leaders I speak to, it's more often that there's a service element first versus a technology element. And the struggle and the opportunity is how to convert from A to B. Yeah, no, and I love that that tech enabled model with with services. Margins are better, and if you just pure SaaS, to your point, you can maybe muscle your way through it. But you know, there's an opportunity. I just had on the podcast. It's not hasn't aired yet. The CEO of Penji and founder, and what they are design services, you know, graphic design services. But what drew me to him was he is pricing it, you know, kind of a service as a service model, right? So for a fixed monthly cost, unlimited design. So he was just changing the marketplace. So a little off, off our path, but I mean, I'm, I'm a huge fan of that the model. And for you to be thinking about that 10 years ago was, you know, I call it innovative, right? Definitely ahead of your time back then. Well, we knew that if we didn't make the right choices on business model and how we, I know it sounds subtle, but how we recognize revenue, that we could be considered one type of business or another. And we made what is the long-term harder choice, less sexy on what our revenue looked like in terms of size out of the gate. But what it means for us now is that our core business is an 80% gross profit business growing at 50% a year and a hundred million dollar business. It took us 10 years to build that opportunity, but now we have a very interesting path in front of us. Yeah, no doubt. And maybe that's a good point to say, all right, in the early days, so you got to 1.6, where'd you find the customers? How did you connect with them? How did you get, it sounds like you had a need to have product versus a nice to have product, which helps, but you know, how did you start the initial sales engine? Well, initially, this is probably no surprise. It was my own Rolodex, right? It was my own understanding of customers. So I worked in this insights business in this very similar world on the services side for, you know, eight, nine years. And I've run P&Ls that were in the size of like $25 million to $35 million of of P&L. And so in starting this new business, I knew that I could attract a similar type of customer and also provide them with a similar type of service out of the gate. And so for me, it was Rolodex was the key driver for the first couple of years. But the reality is, is that my Rolodex in the early days was only going to last so long. Right. And there's that moment when, okay, I only know so many people and I can only convince so many people that I know to take a risk with me. Right. Yeah. And a lot of them will because of friendship, relationship, or business need. All those things really matter in terms of those early days. So really the first next step was to bring on more senior executive and salespeople that had a different Rolodex, very similar, but could also do the same thing. So if you look at our first couple of year revenue trajectory, we did 1.6 in nine months in 2010. We did six and a half million the second year, and we almost broached $10 million in the third year of business. Oh, that's fantastic. Which is not a normal growth curve for, for any style of company. But very quickly, once we got to 10, there was no additional Rolodex was going to bring us to the next real scalable points. How do you get to 20 and how do you get to 50 million? Right. So then we started to think about what is our, what is our go to market? What is our sales motion? What is our product communication look like when it's not an executive selling or even a VP, but a dyed in the wool salesperson? And how do they now create sales motion when they're 
engaging with a buyer at a, at a similar level, a peer level at the at the enterprise target company. Right, and then they right. have to sell up in their organization. So the entire sales motion had to change. The process had to change and our go to market had to change with it. Yeah. Any maybe key learnings? <laughs> I know we're summarizing that pretty quick. But I'm just... <laughs> and then it worked. Right? <laughs> right. Just, um, I think one is recognizing that every procurement decision by a large enterprise in B2B is a multi-person decision-making process. Right. And so it's easier sometimes when you have a direct relationship with a C-suite executive to get a decision made. But helping a salesperson and have, give them the materials to actually find, of course, that champion and sell internally to an enterprise so that all the negative Nancys that are going to be there actually eventually commit and, and dive in. Helping them understand how to make that sale in this particular context is about training and enablement of those salespeople. So it's really spending time on thinking about how they're going to get the organization to say yes, not just one person to say yes. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, you're right. It just poof, we, it worked. We're on to the next, the next level. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's easy. No big deal. <laughs> I think the other thing is we really understood the economics. So part of the value to an organization of digital transformation is that their internal processes move faster. So there's a speed up of efficiency. There's a speed up of cost structure. So they're doing the work is less expensive. And it's much easier to make a sale when it's going to reduce cost in the seven figures world for, for a customer, right? That tends to start people like, hmm, I want to I wanna hear more about that. Right. So really understanding why the customer would make this decision and really be able to speak to how those decision makers are going to become superstars in their organization because they decide to choose Lucid to transform their business. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Value is going to win every time you go back to need to have versus nice to have. You're solving a real problem with real economic benefits is, is going to help. But I guess a question for you to kind of follow on to that, just even the last two to three years, seeing that outreach or the touches to the folks that, that don't know you, right? You know, they have a problem, but they don't know you. I, have, has your approach changed in the last couple of years, right? Because I, I see a lot of the founders say, hey, I know we can help these folks. So I'm going to hire three outbound business development reps yeah. to call on them. And ease, man, it just seems like that's going to get, it's tough. It's going to be even tougher as digital is moving. So I'm just curious if your model changed as much trying to connect with new folks, you know, maybe even less than you know five years ago to where what you're doing today. I'll say some of our biggest success stories around sales and marketing were being intentional about the storytelling of how the industry is changing and our mutual role in that change. So it's normal for a company to say, I have a product, I have a vision, and it's going to impact my customer and it's going to be great. But the context that Lucid kept coming back to is our industry is changing and we need to have a broader discussion about where we are all going and that if we make this transition together, the pie will grow. So sometimes even engaging with our competitors on how we can tell a broader story so that things grow faster. So I think a lot of times people are very much focused on their, their company's lane and they assume that the competition is always negative to their growth story. And the reality that we find time and time again is that actually competition can help grow the pie is growing faster so that it's not just a fixed amount you're winning and losing with your yeah 
No, I think that's such a good point. And you do think about that in the sense that one, if you're confident that your solution is going to deliver more value, right? <laughs> that, Absolutely. hey, this this world of your competitor knows probably a bunch of people you're not connected with and super simple terms right now, but all of a sudden they get introduced to the broader market and they say, oh crap, there's a better solution out there than what we've been looking at. So now if your product isn't better, it may have <laughs> a different point, but... Let's assume it's better for fun, yeah. right? for fun and profit. But the, the specific story is around our third or fourth year, we started recognizing, and this is going to be terminology that's industry specific, so just bear with me, no that worries. there's a, a subset of customers called sample customers. These are the companies that are providing databases of people who take surveys. And I recognized that there wasn't a conference just for sample companies, just for this one subset. And so we literally created a, a conference so that this, these customers who are part of our supply chain, and we were part of it as well, could engage about the strategic vision of our industry. Because the only other place we had to go was a conference where our customers were, and then we're in a sales motion and a competitive motion versus a collaboration motion. So what I found, A, we did like three conferences in two years and eventually became its own association and, and spun the whole thing out to, to an independent board. But what it did is it set Lucid as a thought leader in terms of where things were going. And so companies started to come to us, not because we were selling, because they wanted to know what their own future was going to be, because we were in a future state of where their company was likely to be impacted by change. Yes. And so this is a, a like a, a lot of companies focus on their products and their financials. And one of the mistakes I made early on is not understanding that storytelling and relationships are as important to driving not only sales, but how you're company is viewed in the market. And if you spend time on that storytelling, you can create a lot of opportunities on the sales and financial side. Yeah, where people are just going to come to you because the, the value that you provided outside is such a good example. And to reinforce, you know, building that network, right, of adding value outside of it. So, yeah, I think the old the stigma was, well, I can't give away all my good stuff for free, right? Now, you know what? there's a lot of value in giving away your good stuff because people are still going to need help regardless of the industry. Right. Or, or So, man, kudos to you again for ahead of the curve. So. We're doing it one more time where we have officially worked with our friends in the industry to coin this term called ResTech, research technology, which is akin to MarTech, akin to AdTech about digital transformation in this space. We've created the first landscapes and content around what is this industry and our first conference on just ResTech, the future of digital transformation in our space is happening at the end of March. And it's not just for Lucid, and that's one of the key points of view, it's really for all of the companies in the space to grow and develop together, even those that are competing with us. Because if we're creating a rising tide and a, a larger pie of growth, we will all benefit regardless of the relative competitiveness or product capability or whatever it may be. Yeah. And so I'm going back to the well and saying, being a future thought leader in a space can drive a lot of growth for you and, and help bridge the gap on why certain companies are going to say yes to their products and services. Yeah, I think that's so good. Make it about the customer and not about you, right? Too many companies make it about them 
and you just lose the, the faith, the confidence that it's a one-sided conversation. It's only about you. So, you know, yep. such good lessons there. And you can start small, right? I mean, you guys start a little bit later, but if you're into a space that you're kind of changing the, the story to your point, you know, there's no reason why not to start to build that network and you get people talk about tribes and all these other things, but, you know, network relationship and storytelling critical to, to growth. And I think that one of the challenges we're in New Orleans, if you're not in either the West Coast or in New York, oftentimes you have a hard time with the storytelling because there's not an infrastructure around you for that to be easy or the relationship driving or the networking is not as subtle and easily had. Again, thinking like in a pre-COVID context, but right. one of the values of being in the West Coast or East Coast is networking and relationships are easy because of, of just massive people being in one place doing a similar thing. So you have to actually work harder is my point. It has to be part of your daily ritual that you are going to work on relationship building as much as you're building on product and, and, and sales engines and technology. That's great advice. And now I want to kind of pivot back a yeah. little bit because another area that too many founders overlook or invest that, you know, while we're starting to grow, I need a silver bullet of technology, right? I'm going to automate this without <laughs> thinking of, <laughs> about process, right? So how do you, I'm just curious how you thought about process as you started to grow and when did you really start to focus on it to help kind of streamline that? <laughs> uh, okay. You're, you're getting into the good stuff here. So the, the culture of successful startup up to say what I'll call like the 20 to $50 million range for a B2B company versus the culture and process of a scale-up are almost night and day. And every company that I've worked with, especially with including Lucid, it's really hard to overcome the culture of startup to get to scale-up. And the part of that culture is your processes. Part of it is are your instincts of what's important. Because what's important in startup can be very different. Your priorities, your risk profile, lots of things be very, very different. So we, we struggle and continue to struggle with this as Lucid as we go from a context of getting to this first hundred million to how do we get to the billion dollar revenue mark? Right. That's a scaling process than a startup process. One of the key things is believing that it sounds so dull and so boring, That's okay. but documentation matters. Writing it down matters. When you're, when you are in the same place and you're small, you can converse and make decisions verbally where most people need to understand are in the room. But once you get to a certain scale, that's impossible. It actually almost doesn't matter what you say. It's what you write down that matters. Right. What you document and how you disseminate information and how you make decisions that are distributed decisions versus, you know, in a single place, whether that's a headquarters, an office or a person. So those those are big transformations for a company to make because you can spend years and years in startup mode before you shift to really scaling up mode. Yeah. And to your point, even, you know, I, I kind of look at it in the early from the startup to the scale so that the 10, one to 10, you're really starting to maybe try to document your go-to-market pieces, yep. right? Just so you, there's repetitive, you're bringing sales folks on, you want marketing speaking the same language as sales, but man, you start to go from 10 to 25 and 25 to 100 and beyond. That's a whole organizational scale that the complexity is... I mean, I can, I've got to believe your role changed fundamentally from what? More and more and more. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's the hardest job of a founder and CEO to know what their job is yeah. because there's no guidebook for what you're supposed to be doing today. You can get advice, right? You can have investors or board or friends or colleagues or mentors. But the reality of what's important today for you to do, but also what you're preparing for for the next couple of quarters or years, that's probably the hardest job is to know what the priorities really need to be. 
And that's probably where I spend most of my time with, with founders and early CEOs is helping them prioritize what's really important right now versus a lot of the noise that they will get as to what they're supposed to be doing. And I always get excited when I figure out what, what my next job is, right? That's a great moment because now I know what to do. It's this anxiety struggle. What is my, what is the priority that I need to be working on, right? Because at some point yeah. in my world, everything that I've ever done in the company, someone else who's far more capable than I am now runs. So almost every aspect or functional piece of the business, there's now someone there who really knows what they're doing and can do a far better job leading a team to execute than I was ever able to do as a startup CEO. Yeah, which is part of that progression, right? Of And it's interesting. I'd love to get your perspective on this too, because I do talk to founders. You know, I had one guy that was on the Shark Tank, raised some money. The, the product was going quick, but then he decided to sell the company because he's like, you know what? I don't want to manage people. I'm a, an inventor. I'm a product guy. I don't want to do it. And you hear, and maybe it's too cliche, but you know, the startup CEO is not the same as the scaling CEO, right? To just the job right. changes. And obviously you've been able to make that pivot. Is it just a, is it a mindset, a skill set? where love your perspective on that? Well, I remember raising money from our seed investors back in 2010 and saying that I know I'm the entrepreneurial startup CEO, but I want the opportunity to prove that I can be the scaling CEO. So the reason I'm the scaling CEO is I'm going to prove that I can make that transition because scale CEOs are not always the startup. And that happens right. time and time again for a lot of great reasons. So I've dedicated myself to figuring it out and working through some of it's just starting to love things that you didn't like as much, right? <laughs> starting to obsess over process and documentation and how do we organize. Those are not what I call the reason you started the company to begin with. Typically is I want to learn how to love documentation, right? Right. <laughs> but it's learning that new set of skills is also exciting because I can see how that parlays into being involved with larger organizations as much as smaller organizations in the future. Yeah, no, it makes sense. I mean, I can talk to you for a couple hours, I think, but I do want to be respectful of your time. But I do want to one of my greatest passions in life is working with founders and younger companies and helping them a give them the confidence and belief that you can and will achieve the goals you set for yourself, and that very few people really understand the emotional toll that being the founder and CEO is. And if I can just empathize and be there with you then we've done something great. Yeah. And if there's anything that I can add to say, not only is it okay that you're going through all the things you're going through, have you thought about this? Maybe think about this. It's a rare and unique individual that actually says, I'm gonna start a company. So many people say they will, but never actually do it. The rare ones who take that risk, take that on, bless them. Yeah, and the more resources, I always said that getting from that one to 10, it's not a idea issue, it's an execution issue, right? And it could be a confidence, there's a whole host of things. But I, I do want to go down one more path with you before okay, I go. My last two questions is, you know, from a culture standpoint, right? I grew up in the enterprise space and culture really didn't exist, right? In most companies that you come in, you do your job, you grow. But obviously you had a passion, you had a small team back in, in 2010. As you started to grow, were you focused on the culture and the type of folks you were bringing in? What, what was kind of your thought process and did that evolve as you were starting to scale as well? So I was one of the folks that thought culture and like values posters on the wall was kind of nonsense, right? Early in my career. 
and I've been proven really, really wrong. So I'm now on the other camp saying, oh my God, focus on this earlier, the sooner the better. Obviously hiring and how you go through the process of attracting top talent to your organization is really important. I'll, I'll say two things about it. One, especially in what I'll call millennial and Gen Z hires, culture may be the number one thing they care about. Not the compensation, maybe the vision of the company, but they didn't expect to be around for more than a couple of years. Right. So it's really who are they with and what, what are the values and story of this company and do they align themselves with that or not? And at Lucid, our story was for probably three or four years, we didn't think much about culture. We were just doing, we're just getting it done, execute and go. And we, I realized at some point we need to actually define what our culture is. I don't remember how I made that decision, but I brought in a third party culture consultant. Yes, that exists. And I remember uh, him sitting down and saying, hey, well, what do you want your values to be? And I was like, no, 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 no. we're not going to do that game. We're not going to aspire to values. Let's go through a process of discovery what our values actually are. Let's talk to our customers. Let's talk to our investors. Let's talk to obviously to our employees and just go through a process of who is Lucid? What are the values of the team across the board? And then let's see if we a like those values and want to change them. And then you go through a way of documenting and actually rolling them out and be more explicit and intentional. Good news is we liked our values. We liked who we were. We thought they were good. And luckily, I have the pleasure of working with a chief people officer and at Lucid, that's Nicole Patel, who really focuses on culture, our values, our mission and vision, and making sure that as an organization that we can scale those. And when you're hiring 100 people or more in a year, how do you how do you instill the culture especially in a virtual first environment on a global basis. It becomes more important, not less. Yeah. And I think you guys will have a slight edge and advantage in the, you know, the post pandemic world as, you know, it used to be, and I still know a bunch of long legacy B2B companies that are like, well, we're, we've modified some processes to get through, but then we get everybody back to the office. I'm like, I don't think people are coming back to the office. At least the good ones aren't. So how are you going to build that into a, a distributed or virtual workforce? And I mean, I think it is, if you want the best people and you can get them from anywhere now, you're going to have to be able to, to offer that, right? Has that, is you guys always virtual or has that been? Well, we're a global organization. So right. coming into COVID, we had 12 different offices on, you know, 14 different, 14 offices in 12 countries. So we had already been Zoom first on meetings and we were actually struggling with globalization because so much can happen around the physical spaces of an office. So New Orleans office, New York, London, Delhi as an example. COVID forced us immediately to be decentralized in a rapid scale. So we'd already kind of tiptoed for maybe 18 months into this. COVID just turned it over to there is no central office. What does HQ even mean when we're all nowhere in the same place at once? And it's been a huge benefit to the culture because part of scale is democratizing decision-making and democratizing communication. And being distributed means that you can't rely on just finding someone in, again, in the hallway and saying something that just doesn't really happen. So you have to go about your communication decision-making process very, very differently. I don't know what the office looks like. I mean, I, I, I've been going into my office in downtown New Orleans with a few people in a space for like 200 and I don't know if I want to make the community anymore. Like it's what's the purpose of this anymore now that we've done coming up on a year. Yeah. As a scary. Global, yeah. Like, so I don't know, but my sense is that less office is probably the reality, but for us, it's wonderful that 
if you don't have an office, you can literally hire anyone from anywhere at any time. Your talent pool becomes the globe versus those who are within the commuting distance of a particular place. Yeah, and that's I think that's a good warning for companies too. That's look, man, if you've got some good people and you're not flexible with the uh, the working arrangements, somebody else is going to come poach, and it could be from anywhere oh. now, not just in your local market. That was a very interesting realization for us last year, where we had a normal number of what I'll call West Coast focused technology firms who would poach from our our team uh, in New Orleans or other places. Suddenly. Every technology firm that had a physical bias to their hiring lost that bias, and they're all hiring from everywhere. So we realized that we're not competing for talent in a, in a place. We're competing talent globally, and our, our compensation and benefits aligned with what all those other companies will actually pay and afford. So now we don't have like a, a New Orleans compensation chart or a New York compensation chart. We have a, you know, a across the country, just one unified American compensation chart that's competitive with all the companies that we compete with for talent. And did that cost us more money? Yeah, it really did. But it means that we want to remove compensation as the reason why you're picking up the phone to talk to a recruiter. If we're failing you on your career pathing, on your culture, on how your manager is working with you, these are reasons why people leave jobs, but it shouldn't be because there's more money somewhere else. Right. Yeah, that's such a good point. I know I took this off topic a little bit, but I, <laughs> I think you're in the middle. You're a perfect, you know, your perspective is spot on in the sense of, hey, it's changing. You guys were set up for it, but man, that's going to be a competitive advantage for you against some other, like I said, longer established companies that are really going to struggle with this, with this change. So it's just exciting. We're hiring people from all over the country now in a way we never were before. That's thrilling. It's exciting. Yeah. 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 Like I said, it opens up. People can live where they want now. They don't have to necessarily live in the city. And um, yeah. I think it's fast. I'm super excited about the future. It's going to be different. But I think the next five years are going to be, especially in the B2B space, so we're going to see more change and transformation than I think we have maybe in the last 20 years combined, but all for the better. I think it's all heading towards a better outcome for customers and employees. So appreciate that, that insight. No worries. All right. So two last questions and I'll, I'll let you go. And I really <laughs> okay. ton of value in, in this episode is, you know, what's, what's next for you guys, right? As we're in the early part of 2021 now, what's the focus for you and Lucid? Well, we're really noticing two big customer moves for the people that we work with. One is how important measuring media. And what that means is if you're rolling an advertisement or a marketing campaign, you have a website or an app, it's really important to know how your customers are responding to those digital things, right? Or do they like the ad? Do they like your site? Why are they not going through like a point of sale process or a cart process? And so really focusing on how we can provide the data and the insights on how your customers are responding in real time to all the exposure that you put out there for all your digital content. And that's a big need for, for all of our customers and there's a big path of growth for us. We see that particularly in the TV space where as you've probably seen, linear TV is now becoming Roku and these digital yeah. devices. There's a strong desire by brands and enterprises to understand what that transformation looks like because they wanna be able to understand their audiences 
in the same way they can understand a digital audience. So they want their TV audiences to be as understand, understood as their more digital audiences. And those are converging rapidly in the middle of that space. The, the other real value that we're seeing is that more and more of our customers, and this is, may seem strange to you, are moving past really wanting to be services first. They're looking to really have a technology or subscription relationship with us and maybe have some services on top of it. Literally riding away with our customers to move away from a service first concept to a technology and DIY first concept. And so these are two real important trajectories of our customers and, and therefore our business. And finally, I think you saw me hint at it. We have this plan and path to go from a hundred to a billion dollars. And our goal is to do that over the next five years. Wow. And that's going to require some glorious heavy lifting and, <laughs> and long nights and lots of different things to happen there. But I feel extraordinarily blessed to be confronted with that challenge because as you've said, getting to zero to the first million is the hardest part. Every incremental zero on that is actually relatively easier than that first one. And I'm just lucky to be a part of the, the this business and seeing how it goes. That's fantastic. And we'll have to have you back on to give us an update on, on progress, but yeah. you know, it's, I hired this, uh, hired a chief of staff who works with me was at ServiceNow, obviously a public company, multiple billion dollars. And she comes in first day and she goes, Oh, you want to get to a billion dollars? Let me tell you the second 500 million of that is so much easier than the first. It'll happen <laughs> in the blink of an eye. <laughs> Great. Let's go do it. It's awesome. We're always one step ahead. And so the uh, last question I ask everybody is, you know, what is one thing you, Patrick, would recommend or highly recommend anybody? It could be personal, professional, you know, whatever's kind of top of mind for you right now. I appreciate that question. For me, it was, I wish that I had been more focused on my physical health earlier in my career. And blessed being COVID and now I've been starting the past couple of years, really working on eating better, like using a whole 30 kind of framework and now working out with a trainer three times a week. It's remarkable how helpful that is going back to being a better CEO and, and like father and, and husband and just better mental state, feel better physically, very personal. I wish I had started this habit and behavior far earlier. It's not surprising. It's not big. There's a big aha or some you know trick, but I know lots of people who don't really take their physical health as seriously as they could or really work on it. And I've still discovering huge benefits for actually taking the plunge and, and making it a, a focus. Yeah. Better late than never. Then you're right. There are so many founders that are all in on the business that they sacrifice everything else. And what I hear kind of a theme is you mentioned is you got to gotta look out for yourself as well, because if you're not at your best, the company's yeah. not going to be at its best and, you know, make that time to invest and it's okay to right take the hour, eat yeah. better. Right. So no, I think it's really good advice. And I don't think enough people still talk about the the physical and even mental, right? Take physical a break. Mental what, one thing I tell founders a lot is the company is going to build itself around your behaviors. It's your culture. It's your company. So if you're working 100 hours a week in the first two years, you've now created an environment where the culture and the infrastructure requires you to do 100 hours a week. No, it's not necessary. None of it's required. So you can be intentional about the work and life that you want to have as a founder and the, the, the business will formulate and evolve around you. Right. So it's okay to do things that may not seem as productive because if you don't make those unproductive choices early, the company will require you to be productive at that level 
through your entirety of your work with it. Yeah. And you're right. People, the early employees are going to learn by example and follow your lead and that's going to set the tone. So yeah, I think that's really good advice. And I know we're really short on time. So Patrick, last thing, if work, if people want to learn more about you and Lucid, what's the best way for them to reach out and, and connect? Lucid is, we have a little URL hack. So it's www.luc.id. Love it. Right. So it's a little, little URL hack. But you're welcome to jump onto Twitter and say hello at Comer Patrick or even my LinkedIn as well. So come say hello. Uh, I look forward to engaging. If, and honestly, if, if you think that insights or research could transform your business, we're one of many companies that can help you be more competitive in how you approach your market. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that you've now launched your own podcast, that episode one is now out there as we're recording. So go check you it out. on uh, Spotify or whatever. We just dropped our first episode last week, which gives me a huge amount of respect for you, Brett, for the tens, nineties, and you're broach a hundred here soon. So uh, congratulations on all your efforts to get to this place. Oh, thank you. And I love it. I mean, I get, how else would I get a chance to talk to folks like you and, and learn from it? So appreciate your time, Patrick, continued success. And we'll, we'll circle back and, and catch up with you in the not too distant future. Onwards and upwards. Take care, man. Cool. Appreciate Take it. care. See ya.